This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Christine Korath is an associate professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. She's also a consultant that works and helps organizations create a thriving workplace. She came to my attention because she wrote a book called Mastering Civility, something that I believe is sorely missing. I asked Christine to come here to speak with us about mastering civility and some of the little things that make the biggest difference in the workplace and in the results that you produce. This is Christine Porath in the arena. Christine, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm wonderful. Where are you today? I'm in Los Angeles. One of my favorite cities. Where do you live? I live out in Redondo Beach. Okay, nice. I lived in Brentwood when I was a kid, and I still miss L.A. every day. (laughs) The weather's pretty tough to beat. The weather's very tough to beat, especially if you're in Ohio right now, because we're just now having, you know, the 42-degree mornings, and it's, you know, that winter's coming. Yeah, well, I grew up in Ohio, so I appreciate the climate differences for sure. But, (laughs) you know, you can't beat the people in the Midwest. Uh, Definitely a nice, friendly group, and it was a great place to grow up. When I went out to L.A. to front a hair metal band when I was 21 years old, as soon as I applied any place, the fact that I was from the Midwest, I mean, I was immediately offered a job and preferred. (laughs) They're like, wait, you're not from around here? (laughs) We'll Uh, take you. Yeah, it it may still work that way. I bet it does. You know, I don't know if I would have made it through high school. I had a tough time making it through high school to begin with just because it wasn't interesting enough for me. But With the beach and all the other things, it's a big distraction. It is. Yeah, definitely have to work on staying disciplined. There's, I always want to be outside, so I end up reading and working outside a lot. Nothing wrong with that. Let's dive into your book for a few minutes, Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for the Workplace. I want to talk about a number of things that you cover in the book, but I I want to start just generally sort of maybe just laying the groundwork here. Why was it necessary to write this book? Well, I think I realized both from my personal experience working in a toxic workplace, and then my dad had worked for two really uncivil, you know, toxic bosses over the course of a couple of decades, just what it can do to people. For my dad, it was more his health, I think. And for me, it was productivity, time lost, worrying about how to respond and so forth, and then seeing what it did to others, both productivity-wise in the workplace, but also how people brought it home with them. And I just felt like I didn't think once I started working that we were outliers, you know, that this was happening all too often. And I really wanted to draw attention to the consequences of this. I felt like we could and should do better in our workplaces, both for people, but also for organizations. I agree with that. And I, I really think that it really is about people 
I've always struggled with the idea of things like shareholder value and things like that that don't speak to people. It's almost as if people are cogs. Can you describe in your experience and maybe in your father's experience what makes a toxic work environment and what when people are are not civil, what does that look like? Well, I think for me, what ended up happening, it started from the top. So in this particular case, it was the person whose name was on the sports academy. But what I saw happen was when someone was belittled or even just working around it, though, that it was contagious. So the person would shrink. They would become a smaller version of themselves. They would question what they did, not only in the moment, but throughout the day. And oftentimes that would persist. But I think for me, just being a witness to it, what I saw was people not giving their all. And a lot of this wasn't even intentional. And I've found out since then, anytime you're around rudeness or disrespect or people questioning their abilities that way, then what happens is that we don't focus as well. We're not as attentive to information. We're certainly not as attentive to people in the moment. So we're missing out on connecting and either maintaining or deepening relationships. I also think that people aren't as creative or innovative, and we know now from research that they're far less helpful. And again, much of this is not intentional. (laughs) You know, it's pulling us off track in ways that it's not just a story of retaliation, which happens (laughs) about 90% of the time, but it's also a story about shutting people down and holding people down in ways that they will not give their potential. And oftentimes, you know, about 12% of the time we've found people will leave the organization because of one incident that they described. The problem is they don't report it this way. So there's also a huge turnover problem, which is so costly to organizations. So those are just a few of the things that we know from research about how organizations and leaders are not getting the most out of their talent, which is really a shame. And, you know, for people, when they do shrink, when they do feel held down, it often really affects their identity. And unfortunately, that they carry that forward in their career as well. I love that you're describing it in the the words that you're using about you're really shrinking the individual that you have the interaction with. You're shrinking. And if a leader does this, then the leader is literally shrinking their whole team by creating this kind of a toxic environment. So you hire these people to generate certain outcomes, and then you shrink them and you continue to have them withdraw or withhold the value that they could create out of fear. And then ultimately, you're mad at your people. I'll share just one quick story with you. I was with a sales leader speaking to his company. And at dinner, he said to me, I'm going to fire the whole lot of them and start over. And in a moment of brilliance, something came out of my mouth that I wasn't expecting. And I had to just smile when I said it because I knew it was one of those things where it's so good. And I said, what are we going to do with the third group? Yeah. And, and yeah, you get it immediately. He did not. He said, what are you saying? And I said, what are we going to do with the third group? And he said, I don't understand. And I said, look, when we, when we fire the first group and we hire the second group and you treat them exactly like you're treating the first group, what are we going to do when we get to the third group? And he said, are you saying it's me? <laughs> and I said, well, not just you. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of people complicit in this. If you don't like this group and you're belittling this group and you're not taking care of this group and you don't respect them as individuals, 
you're never going to have a company that will reach its potential and become what you want it to be. And it's because you're literally doing that as the leader, right? Absolutely. And so I share similar experiences when I was working in a sports management firm. And what we know now from experiments is it affects witnesses, you know, and people that hear about it just as much. I mean, it takes them off track in ways that they're, as you mentioned, going to be thinking about what does this mean for me? You know, how should I respond? Things like that. So I think that it's really important to know that this is not just about the two people involved, let's say, in a specific incident and telling people that they're lousy performer or something like that, particularly in front of a group. I mean, if that kind of thing happens, anyone that's around that and people that hear about it afterwards, it's going to take them off track too. So you're not just shrinking that person in the moment. That spreads like wildflower. (laughs) You know, it just, I talk about it like a bug, like the incivility bug, you know, almost like a cold type virus where part of the issue becomes you don't know that you have that, but then we become carriers, you know, so the third group will infect the fourth group and it persists for a much longer time than we're aware of. When I was at Harvard Business School in an organizational development class, one of the guest speakers that we had said it would be easier just to burn your company down and start over Wow! than than to change a toxic culture because it is so pervasive. Yeah, it it is really tough. And as you might guess, the larger the group or the organization, the tougher and the slower it is to really change. I'm going to dive into the book, but before I just want to, you know, my, my view of leadership is this is leadership's responsibility, number one, although everyone has a role to play. But I do think that you're right. And one of your central premises here is that if this is the culture everybody's watching the leader to see how to behave. So if I treat people poorly, if I treat them like they're they're not important as an individual, and I, I don't really work to try to help people succeed, and I let them go, or I don't treat them fairly, the rest of the organization is taking that as an example of how do I now have to respond and behave in this environment. So I think your idea of it's like a cold or a virus it spreads so fast, and I don't know that people really recognize in the moment when they're when they're behaving in a way that's not helpful to the person or the rest of the organization that they're really projecting out to other people how they have to now behave. And so, to protect themselves, they're going to do what's the best choice, which is withdraw, shrink, and try to withhold anything that might get me on somebody's radar. One of the studies that really speaks to this are experiments that we've done with witnesses or, again, people just being primed with rudeness. And what happens is they're three times less likely to help someone. They have no idea what the study is about, and yet we become much more focused on ourselves and, I think, far less likely to give. So we do withdraw, as you mentioned, and we're just not going to be the contributors, particularly to the team environment or the culture that the leader might really want to have. Talk to me about what the fundamentals of civility are. And I think when I'm reading this chapter, this is so basic. Yes. (laughs) And not done. Right. Exactly. And sometimes I feel silly when I talk about it in front of groups. You know, I start out rattling things off. Isn't there an acknowledgement, though, that we're not doing this when you do this? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I do think that people walk away and hopefully it serves as a reminder Probably the the biggest one that I think people respond to immediately, and this is the one I lead with um, when I'm speaking with groups and executives, is listening. You know, um, 
most of us are really distracted nowadays and listening is a huge challenge for us. They've done studies with phones and even having technology near us is distracting not only for us, but the other person. Like if there's a phone on the desk, they did one study recently, it's not the other person that you're speaking to. People are far less likely to like you and trust you. You know, they just, we carry this distraction around and we judge people to your point earlier about making judgments. And so I think that for most of us, particularly given technology and you know, being tethered to it, listening is a huge fundamental that we've really just lost. And so that would be, I think, the biggest one that we could work on. I agree with you completely. It's a sign of caring. And when you shut the technology down, you prove that you're not self-oriented, you're other-oriented for at least that moment. I practiced this in a business where when somebody came in to talk to me, I would shut my laptop lid. Oh, great. And uh, no, it wasn't great. It was oh, no. great after a little while. At first, the person sitting across from me was really nervous that they had my uh, full attention because they yeah. hadn't gotten anyone's full attention for probably a long time. So you shut the lid and then all of a sudden they feel like they're on the hot seat. And it took a little while because the pressure for them now to to have something to say was higher because they actually had somebody's full attention. Yeah, I know of a COO, actually. He was leading an executive meetings, and this was at a Fortune 100 type firm. And he actually decided to do a little experiment because he had learned about mindfulness and so forth and felt like people were really distracted. And so he put a cardboard box outside of their meeting room and he required everyone to drop their phones in it. It was a no laptop meeting, so those weren't allowed either. And he said, at first, people just, it was like, crack addicts, you know, as the (laughs) phones would vibrate in the box outside and so forth. He said, people just really, really struggled with this. They hated it. But slowly but surely, he said, over the course of a month plus, they really enjoyed it. (laughs) And it took a little time. And eventually, within a couple months, they had cut the meeting time in half. And he felt like the quality increased dramatically. He said people that previously wouldn't have spoken up did. And then the other thing was, he said that they, they not only had a lot more fun, but they brought those kind of routines into their relationships outside of that meeting. So that helped as well. But it's very uncomfortable, as you mentioned, (laughs) for people initially, I think. Initially, I think it is. I want to stay with fundamentals for a minute. And there's there's something that you have here um, that I want to point to, and I want to just have you riff on this for a minute. Scholars around the world have studied more than 200 behavior traits. Of these, it turns out that two in particular, warmth and competence, drive the impressions we make. That's it. These two qualities account for more than 90% of the positive or negative impressions we form of the people around us. I want to talk about that because if that statistic is correct, and there's only two components here, it's warmth, and that's going to be caring or other-oriented or something like that in my mind, and competence. Is this somebody who can actually do something? What does that mean for us when it comes to civility, and what, what are the small gestures that create the warmth and the competence? Well, to your point, I mean, civility is really unique because what happens is that warmth and competence are negatively correlated. We tend to bucket people. They're either warm (laughs) or they're competent. You know, she's really friendly. I bet you she's not too sharp. He's really smart. I bet you he's a jerk to work for. And we do this without 
thinking, really. We do this very quickly. And so I think for leaders, you know, it's very important that we work on connecting and then leading because warmth is actually the primary. This goes back hundreds of years, but it's almost like we judge based on survival. So we're first thinking, is this a person I can trust, you know, or do I have to fend for myself? And then can she or he help me with competence? And so for leaders, I think the biggest takeaway is I have to connect and then lead. And there's a great HBR article on that by Amy Cuddy and some colleagues. And so I think these small things that you mentioned, like smiling, as basic as that sounds, you actually do connect with people that way. You know, smiling is contagious. And not only does it lift your mood in the moment and soon thereafter, but it actually lifts other people. I'm and so it bad makes at them, that one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll work on it. You know, I, I know am. you have kids. And so actually one of the things is kids smile 400 times a day and so few adults smile even 30 times a day. So we, we're losing the skill, sadly, it seems like, or this behavior over time. And Amy Cuddy and her colleagues really recommend that if this is tough for you, particularly if you're speaking or something, you know, you're getting in front of people, that beforehand she gives the inside out strategy and they they do this with politicians apparently, you need to think about things that actually make you happy. In other words, the fake smiling, you know, and kind of faking it, it doesn't work well for many people. It's often easy to spot and then people may downgrade you because they they don't think you're genuine. So if you can think of things that really do light you up, and the example that they've used with politicians and cases is they work in components where they're bringing up their children because that actually brings them a lot of natural joy. And so if there are certain things, you know, a place, a memory, what have you, you really hold on to that and it actually changes us physiologically and we show that on our faces. So, but smiling in general is because it works across cultures. You know, it's one of these things that translates well, almost regardless of who you're in front of or trying to connect with. I like two things that you have here that I think are really actionable for people that are listening to this. And you can get more of this in the book, but the idea that if you get the connection first, so if you're warm and what you say in the book is that It facilitates trust, information, and idea sharing. A smile, a nod, open posture, invite people in. I think that we get the competence and the warmth reversed, and so then the warmth doesn't happen because we're so worried about competence. And it is important to get this in the right order. So I think it's the both are important. They're both two components, but the order in which we get them matters a great deal, the sequence. Yeah, and I'll give you an example of a leader that I think really had this front of mind. And Doug Conant, who came in as CEO of Campbell's in 2001, and his whole management philosophy is on is really about he had to turn that organization around. It was doing terribly, sales had declined, market share had been cut in half, and it was really toxic. But he came at it with the the idea of touch points. I want to be tenderhearted with people, but tough-minded with results. And so I, I want to make it clear that it's not an either or, as you mentioned. You know, you can do both. But he really used the philosophy that throughout the day, he was going to have the opportunity to have these touch points. And he really wanted to make a difference, you know, and he even had an acronym for it. He wanted to listen. He wanted to frame things. So 
showcase and understanding of whatever the person was communicated. He wanted to advance it with his expertise, and then he he would end it by helping and asking, how can I help? But I think he was really masterful in this, and he did a lot of things, which I've read about in your blog, like during the course of his tenure, he hand-wrote 30,000 thank you notes. That's you a know, lot of and thank you notes. It is. But the important, the short end of it is he turned around the organization in terms of results. Within five years, they were markedly better. Seven years, they were producing record-setting results, outpacing the S&P fivefold, winning best place to work, most ethical company, most diverse, things like that. And so, but it came down to some, what we started out the conversation saying, some really simple things, you know, and obviously, he laid off a lot of people, and it, it was a tough call for people that didn't come around, particularly leaders, you know, that didn't embrace kind of the idea of treating people well and respecting people, things like that. I want to move forward and talk about one other chapter in the book. These two chapters are right next to each other in the book, and they really they spoke to me for a whole bunch of reasons. The other ch- chapter that I want to talk about is Judge Not, for a couple reasons. One, I think it's difficult for people to do. And two, I don't really know that we understand our own biases. I don't think that we think we have biases, but we have them. So share how this idea of not judging other people, how that helps you with civility. I think that the problem really stems from the fact that we're bombarded with cognitive overload. So our minds are constantly taking in 11 million bits of information per second in any given time, yet we're only able to process about 40 bits per second. And so the idea is that we're relying on shortcuts constantly, which we're not aware of. And it helps us in many regards. You know, we're filtering things that are helpful to staying on point. However, it often leads us astray. So we treat others in a biased way, you know, because of limiting the information we're taking in. And unfortunately, we all come at situations with these biases, whether they're gender-related, racial-related, your experiences, your judgment about someone coming from a certain organization, certain background, where you're from. We both talked about that early on. And so I think the whole idea is, one, make yourself aware that we are biased in ways that we may even wish we weren't. And secondly, trying to be mindful of that. And there's some great resources out there. You know, there's the implicit bias test. It's in the book, but it's it's out there on the web. I think that primarily I would point people to the rework site. It's actually by Google, but they have yeah, done I was hoping training. you would go into that. There's a lot of research by Google there and a lot of work that they're doing in that area. Can you share a little bit of that for people? Sure. So I think the important thing is a technology firm, they're having issues with you know biases, even in recruiting and selecting and so forth. And so they feel like it's very important that they try to make people aware. And over 35,000 of their 50,000 employees have voluntarily gone through this training. And they actually have the talks on their website free. So they've made this really available. And I always encourage smaller firms in particular that may can basically use this for their employees. And Brian Welley, who's done a wonderful job on this and is a researcher in this area, there are great talks out there for people. There's also great materials for, you know, how to keep this in mind when you're recruiting and selecting, even down to interviewing. There's also information for performance management reviews because 
there's great research out there that shows that we sugarcoat feedback to certain groups. For example, for women, we sugarcoat their feedback by roughly 15%. We don't mean to. We often are trying to protect the person. There are similar research out there for racial differences as well. The problem being that people then aren't getting feedback that could help them develop at the same rate. And so I just encourage people take a look at these documents and most of them are you're able to customize them and so forth. But I think the videos in particular are phenomenal and really give us a sense of how this works on our own. And then in their case, what was really nice about their culture is because people were aware of this, they were encouraged to call people out on it in the moment. (laughs) So we were holding each other accountable for these kind of actions. And it even happened to me when I was visiting there. So I think that it's a really great resource. What what happened to you while you were there? So it was in the course of a lunch. We were talking about someone, a woman who had just had a baby and I made some comment about her coming back or something. And people indicated I wouldn't have said the same thing had it been a guy. And it was very true. I was thinking more of of her as a caregiver, right? Not as an employee in a way that I would not have thought about a guy or her partner, you know, in that particular instance. So in 1950, the workforce for men, I mean, we were almost at, you know, 90 something percent of men. And that number is now down to the low 80s of men's participation rate and between 25 and 54. And a a lot of men are staying home, you know, and and, and the world has changed. And the spouse is the primary economic engine for the family. And it's changing. And I think it's right that it's very interesting to me how much a stereotype persists, even when the evidence isn't true because of the biases that underlie that. I want to ask you one other thing about biases. And the other thing I want to point people to Google's research around psychological safety Mm-hmm. And the impact it has on teams is also very, very helpful. And that you can find if you just search Google and psychological safety. But the the research there is that the safer you are on the team to bring up things without any kind of fear of retribution and where it's a safe place to do that, that counts for more than how smart the people are on the team or how long they've worked together. The fact that it's safe provides people the ability to do better work. But I, I want to ask you just at a more more fundamental level, why do we assume other people have bad intentions? Why do we judge people before we even know anything or assume that they're doing something wrong? And I think for leaders, anytime somebody's doing something that we don't agree with or we don't like, we tend to think that there's something else there, that this person is whatever they are, and that they're really not trying to do good work. Do you have an opinion yeah. on that? It's a great question. And I wish I had a brilliant answer because it would help me because, you know, I think I have this issue of, you know, going towards the negative more often than not and assuming a problem versus there's some outside explanation for it. But I think in general, it stems from fear. You know, it's like that flight or fight type issue, but it really just is about survival at the core, (laughs) but always kind of looking out for trying to protect ourselves. And in this case, it may be protecting our team or our job or how we're going to be judged. So we want to control that, right? And we think that that's about someone else. The other thing is we come with very self-serving biases. 
So whether it's about, it's not my fault, it must be theirs, you know, or some level of incompetence by them. There's also this, they call it the fundamental attribution error. But if let's say you're late to a meeting, I go right at judging why it's a character trait. You don't care. You're looking for another job. You're putting other things first versus there was bad traffic. There was an accident, what have you. However, if I show up late, I immediately think all of the excuses, right? It's never about me. And unfortunately, this is how we judge people. (laughs) That's the bias that we bring to virtually all situations. I don't give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm always giving myself the benefit of the doubt. I think it's interesting because I usually tell people when somebody's really a difficult personality that there's probably always something behind it. There's Mm -hmm. Their kids on drugs, they've got a medical condition, you know, there's probably a dozen other things. And you do have to look at it through that lens and say, I don't think they're actually trying to be a bad person. I think that there are things going on that they're, they're overwhelmed with stress. In a lot of cases, that's true. And if you look at it that way, it's different. I had a situation when I was young where I had a really difficult client who would scream at me and Mm -hmm. curse at me and I needed her business and I was fairly immune to that kind of thing anyway. And I went back to her office one day and she sort of collapsed into her chair and she said, I don't know how much more I can take. And I said, what's going on? And she said, my husband has cancer. We've just had two operations. I'm here 12 hours a day. And then I'm there, you know, sleeping in a chair at night. And I got to see something that I hadn't seen before. But once I saw it, I realized what her behavior is has nothing to do with me there's something else behind it. And it allowed me to have a a very different view of our relationship. And after that, our relationship changed dramatically. Wow. But I want to point to two other things before I ask you where people can go to find you. I do want to point out, I'm really happy. I always like books that tell people what to do. And I think it's important not to just to share an idea, but for anyone listening to this who might be in a situation where the environment that they're in is not quite what it could be or should be, Chapter 14, The Antidote to Incivility, is a lot of ideas about what you can do personally. And I do want to point people to that. And I think it's a great thing to put in this book. And I applaud you for doing it, telling people, look, there there are things that you can do right now. Thank you. And then the book we can find everywhere. But where do you want to send people to find out more about you and your work? So I have a website. It's just my name, Christine Porath. P-O-R-A-T-H dot com. So one word. And it has a lot of resources for people. There's a lot of article links around not only civility, but also how to thrive in the workplace and how leaders can create that culture. There's also some recommended readings, books, what have you. And there's a civility quiz where people can take a quick, very quick, you know, few minute quiz, 32 questions. It customizes results. So it's meant to really point you to specific behaviors that you could improve and things you could do differently, you know, kind of going back to the fundamentals conversation we had earlier. And there's also a team document that really plays off of that quiz where teams can have the conversations around who's doing what and how could we improve in different areas. So it's meant to provide a bunch of resources for people and teams uh, to use to improve our effectiveness, connecting with others and moving these relationships forward. Well, thank you for your good work and thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. 
That was Christine Porath. You can find her at christineporath.com. You'll find that link in the show notes as well as a link to her new book, Mastering Civility. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, also youtube.com forward slash Anarino. When you go to either one of those places, you'll find a link that brings you to my Sunday newsletter, my best work every week in your inbox Sunday so that you can hit the ground running on Monday morning. Help me share this content with other people by going out to iTunes and leaving me a review and rating this, whatever you believe about it. And I'll see you next time right here in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.